that grace and love divine that is ever with us. Thank you that by your grace you still speak to us through your word and that by your love you enable us to respond to that truth. So now may, hear, may preacher and hearers alike be under your word, understanding of its truth and obedient to your will. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, that's twice in a few days I've heard of that strange thing called MP3. I've no idea what MP3 was until I was collared in the Keswick Convention where I was the only speaker in two weeks to preach with a tie on, let alone with a jacket. I did uh, succumb to throwing the jacket off, I had a tie on. But I was collared by a man who told me he heard me preach that very morning on his MP3. I've no idea what an MP3 is. I'm very glad if it takes my word. So if you don't know what an MP3 or an iPod is, you're in good company. Uh, Mike will instruct you in all the intricacies of those uh, marvellous things. Well, now turn back, please, to page 59. Uh, and uh, I can see some people are completely bemused by MP3s. Uh, I'm glad about that. It gives me great hope and encouragement. Page 59, we're going to start a little series. We look at the rescue in the book of Exodus. I was uh, well taught in a North of England grammar school where we learnt good grammar. And one of the things I learnt in grammar <clears throat> was that you never start a sentence with the word and. Now, of course, in the strange world of MP3s and emails uh, and uh, text messages, nobody worries. But, uh, well, that was what I was taught. Now, the strange thing is, though Moses was instructed, says, uh, acts in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, he'd never learnt you shouldn't start a sentence with the word and. Not only does he start a sentence with the word and, a paragraph with the word and, a chapter with the word and, he starts a book with the word and. For in the Hebrew, the first word of Exodus is and, which is a very unusual way to start. And it's a reminder that you see it's carrying on the story of Genesis. Genesis ends, just flick back a page, Genesis ends, and Moses was around there too. He ends with the story of Joseph dying at the age of 110. And after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. I have on my shelves a series of sermons preached by a great Scots preacher called Alexander McLaren, who preached most of his life in Manchester. And he published these sermons, and they're great sermons from Genesis and the last sermon he preached. Now, in the age in which we worry about titles, I spend more time trying to work out a catchy title than preparing a sermon very often. And his final sermon was entitled, A Coffin in Egypt. Can't you imagine that bringing in the crowds? Special service tonight, very good for outsiders, A Coffin in Egypt. But you see, Alexander McLaren wanted to point out, as Moses did in Genesis, that the coffin in Egypt said everything. Joseph was dead. No problem about that. He was really dead. The man who brought the people of God back to Israel, saved the lives of thousands of Egyptians, was now dead. But he made it quite clear in verse 25 that one day his bones must be taken to the promised land. His coffin was only a temporary resting place in Egypt. And one day, centuries later, they would do exactly as he said. And his bones were buried in the promised land, the land that's so much in our news at this very moment. So in a very real sense, he then goes on, does Moses, to start Exodus and. We're now going to see what happens. Joseph has died a long time ago, verse 8. A new king, probably a new dynasty it means, 
who didn't know anything about Joseph. It was an old story. But they got all these thousands and thousands of ethnic minorities, so numerous, verse 7, that the land was filled with them. And this new dynasty, like many governments since, said, what do we do? How do we protect our culture? How do we protect our land? And so we begin a book, which is all to do with uh, how God rescued his people. Now let me just explain. Let us, Paul and I, do this little series between us. Uh, let me explain. The, the Old Testament, there are two ways of looking at it. The very popular way today, and a right way, is to say that it's all pointing on to Christ. It's the flow of history. It's a Bible overview. And we need to see where God is taking us. So it's not surprising that when Moses and Elijah met Jesus on the Transfiguration Mount, Luke tells us that they talked about the exodus that Jesus would have at Jerusalem. That's the exact word. Moses knew all about an exodus. And the fulfillment of it would be when Jesus died on the cross. That was the exodus. My wife and I have uh, had a, a, a week in Samos where I was doing a thing for Keswick Masterson uh, and uh, we enjoyed that. And my, I don't know modern Greek but I can read it because it's the same characters as New Testament Greek which I do understand. And I was intrigued to discover when we went to the departure lounge to come away from uh, Samos we went to the Exodus. Oh, nice that. So if you like it's the departure lounge, the Exodus. And indeed, Samos runway is so small, it was a fairly uh, traumatic exodus as it was, but never mind, the exodus. But it's the word that's used, the departure, the going out. Just on an aircraft? <laughs> of course not. The exodus of this story is a story of God redeeming his people. So it's pointing on to Jesus. But the other way of understanding the Old Testament was more popular in the past, and still is preached, preached certainly by Alexander McLaren then, preached by lots of Keswick preachers today still, is to take snapshots of the Old Testament. That is to see how God was at work. First week at Keswick, there was Chris Wright. I hope you heard him preach at 8.10 this morning on, on uh, Radio 4. Nice to have a, a biblical uh, thought for the day or half an hour for the day on, on, the, on the radio. That was good. But Chris Wright was taking us in numbers and seeing how God was at work in the flow of history. But also you can learn from these characters so as we go through and see Moses, we see God dealing with an individual as he still can deal with us today. So you'll see the flow and you'll see the personal. If I may, before I go any further, so I chose that hymn day by day and hour by hour. It's a beautiful hymn. It meant a lot to myself, I think to my wife and myself in early days of retirement. There's some lovely words there. Ever onwards, ever upwards, you've called me to rise. So I chose that hymn. It's all to do with a personal experience of the grace of God. And eventually, in about 25 minutes' time, when you sing the last hymn, it'll be a great old hymn of top ladies about God's sovereign grace in the world. And here is this picture of God still there. Just note at the end of chapter 2, four verbs used of God. God heard. God remembered. God looked. God was concerned. He was there. He was at work. If you'd been a slave, an Israelite slave, you might have wondered, where is he in all this? Where is God in all this? But he was there. 
You all know, I'm sure, that the only book of the Bible where God is not mentioned is the book of Esther. The name of God never appears in the book of Esther. And yet it's a most remarkable story of the providence of God in most unusual ways. And here in this story, over this long period, chapter 2, verse 23, over that long period, God had not forgotten. I wonder how you respond to and pray for What's happening in the Middle East now? Well, of course, without uh, you must pray that peace may come. You must pray for innocent people suffering and that they may come to an end. All that goes without saying. But do you as a Christian actually hear some other undertones? Strange God providentially working in the Middle East. Don't miss it. God is sovereign God and somewhere in the shadows. I don't know how it will all be fulfilled. I don't know how much longer innocent people are going to suffer. I trust not long. But because I'm a biblical person, I do believe that there's a sovereign Lord at work now, as he was at work then, and all the ethnic rivalries of Exodus are still around. We haven't moved too far. And unless you believe that God's there, Praying becomes rather pointless. Why pray to a God who's gone to sleep? God remembers. So what do we see here? Two things. In chapter 1, we see God keeping watch over a people, the group of Israel. In chapter 2, God keeping watch over a person. That's our theme this morning. Keeping watch in the shadows over a people. Under pressure, under protection. They were under pressure. Uh, please note in verse 1, it's the last time the name Israel is used of Jacob. That was his other name, Jacob and Israel. It becomes the name for a people, but here it's still his name. And this comparative handful of people went into Egypt, saved by the providence of God, saved by the skill and wisdom of Joseph. And they're there for such a long time, verse 6, that uh, verse 7, they're fruitful, they multiply greatly, and they become numerous. Have you seen those verbs before? They're there in Genesis 1. They're the exactly the same words given to Adam and Eve at the beginning that they were to multiply and become numerous and become fruitful. Uh, and in a strange sovereign way, the God of creation was yet again working on his people that they would become numerous. God had a plan and purpose for his people during these long years and centuries of exile. And it all came to a head, verse 8, when a new dynasty, almost certainly it means that, probably uh, a dynasty that included Ramesses II, who was the man who built, verse 11, Python and Ramesses, uh, if you like dates, 1290 to 1225 BC, a long time ago. But nothing in a sense changes. And in a wonderful way, this story is a reminder of the timeless truths of God and yet how terribly personal they shall be. We'll see in a minute. It actually comes down to two midwives. Extraordinary story. We'll come back to those in a moment. This is God at work sovereignly behind persecution happening. You understand why the Pharaoh did it. If you've got an ethnic minority growing and growing and growing and you imagine that there could be danger with them, you've got to do something about it. We pray very much for our own country. Things are changing. We're living in that kind of world. And though he's shutting our eyes and pretending it's not going to have it, dangers and tribulations. 
And there are Christians who are living right in the midst of these situations. Well, under pressure. But under protection as well. That's uh, verses 15 onwards. In the midst of all this exile, having to do hard labour, where is God? I remember very vividly the, the story of my good friend George Hoffman, the tear fund founder, who went on one occasion to visit a camp where uh, a young nurse was having to make up her mind which child she could save amongst the hundreds were there. They couldn't save them all. You had to decide which one you would save. And eventually she couldn't cope anymore and she just burst into tears on George Hoffman's shoulder and said quite simply, George, where is God in all this? And George gently said, now tell me, my dear, why are you here? And through her tears she sobbed out her testimony how God had called her and God had placed her there. And she knew she'd answered her own question. Where is God in all this? I am. And in the midst of a, a terrible picture of suffering, she was at least an illustration of a God who cared enough to send somebody and a Christian willing enough to go. And in the challenge of our world, we're going to come very personal with Moses, particularly next week. There is God in all this. We are. And so it comes down to these strange two midwives. If you want to know, there, verse 15, Hebrew midwives. The Hebrew midwives, the word Hebrew does not necessarily mean Israelites. It means Semitic. They weren't part of the children of Israel, but they came from that Semitic background. They were not Egyptian people. And uh, they, their names, Shifra and Pua, mean beauty and splendor. I just want you to stop a minute. People sometimes talk about the Bible being myths, you know. We sort of produce a story. Uh, it's just sort of somebody making up a story. It's actually, they remember the names. These were two midwives who had names. We remember them. And it talks about the birth stool uh, in verse 16, which is a kind of way in which people in those days would be delivered, and they would often be delivered quickly of their children. But I think it's lovely. God actually working out divine purpose, not just through Moses, in a minute we'll see him, but through two midwives, beauty and splendor. Well, incidentally, you, why did these midwives do what they did? Verse 17, they feared God, so they disobeyed Pharaoh and they actually told lies. I, I find this rather intriguing. There are some Christians who are so pious that they believe nobody should ever, ever, ever tell a lie. You believe in God so much, you tell the truth even, whatever happens. Well, what about Rahab in the book of Joshua? Are, your spy, are the spies still there? Rahab says no. They were upstairs in her bedroom. You can hardly say that no was anything other than a lie. It wasn't being economical with the truth. It was just getting rid of the truth. But by faith, Rahab, says Hebrews 11. And she became one of the people that led to Jesus. And when these midwives were told, well, of course... Uh, it's not that we've let these children live. They've sort of come before we got there. Uh, this is the uh, particular... Is that true? Well, it wasn't true. But they feared God so much they were willing to risk a lie. Uh, please don't get me wrong. I am not encouraging anybody here to go out and be become economical with the truth. Normally we tell the truth. But in this, right, in, in this remarkable way, here were two midwives. After all, they risked their lives. 
If Pharaoh had found out, they were certainly in for trouble. Probably the death sentence. But by, because they feared God, they were willing to make a sacrifice. I suggest at 9.15, and I shall suggest it again at 11 o'clock, for the joys of preaching it twice over, uh, I shall suggest that we are moving into more and more confrontation Christianity. There is no way we can avoid it. The person who wants everything to go smoothly, who wants to be well thought of by their fellows and have no problem, the Christian faith is not for you, friends. Because we're living in a world of confrontation like it was here. And these two midwives took a risk because they believe. We'll come back to that theme again later. And because uh, what they did helped, there were boys being born, but then came the Pharaoh's last challenge, verse 22. Every boy that's born must be thrown into the Nile, but every girl live. <coughs> Again, <coughs> there's nothing new. It's happened often in history. And I'm sure you, with the knowledge of the Bible, begin to think, Herod the Great, what a, what a name to give to Herod. Herod the Great, who had all the children, two years old and younger, killed in order to try to get rid of Jesus? Have you worked out how in history people have decided to try to kill the church to stop God's purposes and yet they always have failed and always will? God is sovereign but it can be painful in the process. Protecting, keeping watch over a people under pressure, under, pressure, under protection. Now secondly, keeping watch over a person. Chapter 2 this is where Moses begins to come into the story. Providence in childhood and providence in manhood. Please don't forget how important Moses' parents were. We read in Hebrews 11, this comment of the writer, By faith Moses' parents hid him for three months because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid. Now every parent believes their child is no ordinary ordinary child. I'm sure your children are extraordinary children. Sometimes you wish they were a bit more ordinary probably. But no child is ordinary. But Moses' parents had the kind of faith that said whatever Pharaoh says we will risk it. We will put our child and we will pray that somehow somehow he's kept safe. And we'll watch. Did you notice how the mother watched while she put the baby in the early verses of chapter 2? She put the baby in the Nile and kept watch. May I have a word to parents? At 9.15 there were hordes of young parents and young children. There are some here. Many of us are grandparents. I wonder how much we care about the spiritual well-being of our children. See, how often, we, Margaret and I, when we read people's Christmas newsletters, how often we see grandparents now we receive letters of mostly who are so thrilled with how well their grandchildren are doing school, college, sport, finance not much about how they're doing spiritually how many Christians have got into the way of the world because that's what we're most bothered about we're bothered about being in the right area to get the right the kids' right education. We're very concerned. We look at all the financial problems in our society. Must make sure that our children are well provided for. And nothing wrong 
in perspective, so long as we are more concerned about how they go on with the Lord. The old Puritan said many centuries ago, too many parents are more concerned about their children getting on than getting up. How would you feel if your child had done marvellous and everything else but had turned their back on the Lord? Wouldn't that disappoint you more than if they'd failed an exam? I hope so. So the parents of, of Moses had got it right. They were concerned about the things that mattered. And Moses got some of that faith from his parents. So she hid, they hid their three-month-old child. Not easy to hide, a three-month-old baby. And Pharaoh's daughter happened, here's the providence, God's sovereignty, Pharaoh's daughter happened to pass by. In fact, Ramesses II had 60 daughters, so the chance of a daughter passing by was reasonably, uh, I suppose, high. Uh, he had several wives, obviously, and 60 daughters who passed. But one of these 60 saw the child and brought the child out. And you notice how beautiful it is when the child comes out. Here's the humanity of the story. Miriam, the sister of Moses, goes to Pharaoh's daughter and says, Shall I get you a Hebrew woman to nurse? By all means. It was all well planned. And Moses' mother became his nurse, and even got paid for bringing up her own child. There you are. And uh, she brought him up. Now, the, the lovely thought is, you see, that there was Moses. You see the providence? On the one hand, he was being brought up by Pharaoh's daughter. On the one hand, he would have all the wisdom of the Egyptians, well-educated, university degree, wealth, and everything else. But he was also being brought up to know that he was a Hebrew. And you see that in verse 11? Twice comes a little word you can miss. His own people. You see, there was Moses, the Pharaoh's son. Oh, that was what they thought. And when he saw the Hebrew slaves, they were his own people. And we'll see in a minute how he will make that choice. It is wonderful when by the providence of God, our children... Our grandchildren do get all the privileges of education, comfort, leisure, and yet at the same time are being brought up as Christians to know that these things are secondary so that they can use the opportunities they've been given to go out to reach a lost world for Christ. My fear is that too many of them are ensnared by the wealth and the comfort and the success. In many parts of the world today, the choice is fairly obvious. Choose to be a Christian and you'll be in trouble. It doesn't seem like that in our world. And we can choose to be Christians and live comfortably. Nobody's going to bother. So long as we're not the awkward kind of Christian who says awkward things about some of the things happening in our world. Dare to be a Daniel. Dare to stand alone. And when Moses had to make the choice, it would mean for him an end to his comfort, an end to his security. And for the rest of his life, yes, that was a memory of the past, living in ease and comfort. Do you ever ask the question, what made Neil Rogers, with a great job in this country, in the medical profession, go off? out into the Central Asia. What made him do it? 
leave behind ease and comfort. Because for him, that was the call. It isn't the call for all of us, of course. But it's a challenge that we need to decide which way are we going to choose. So we come from the providence in childhood, where he'd been prepared, to the passage we read, providence in manhood. He was now, said Stephen in Acts chapter 7, when he preaches, he was now 40. He'd reached 40, and uh, he thought he was just ready. Young man, full of vigour, when you get my age, 40 is a young man. I hope you understand that. A young man, full of vigour, all this background behind him, raring to go. And do you see how he does it? Verse 11, he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. And so he intervenes, he kills the Egyptian, and he thinks they'll want me as their leader. So the next day, he sorts out a fight amongst his own people. And he gets turned down. And Stephen, in his sermon in Acts 7, which ended in his own martyrdom, kept on saying, that's always happened in the history of my people. The fact that Moses was rejected time and time again proves that he was on the line to Jesus, who was rejected completely by you, but chosen by God. But you see, Moses wasn't ready. He now ran, but he was afraid, and he... Pharaoh tried to kill him and Moses fled in verse 15. Very different from the Moses who will confront Pharaoh, we'll see in a couple of weeks' time. He'd be ready then, but at the moment he thought he was just the man to do it at 40. So what did he do when he flees? He goes off to the, into the wilderness, he goes off into exile, and for another 40 years he waits the moment. I had the audacity at the 9.15 service to say that he wasn't called till 80. And I had a quick glance around the congregation, decided quite erroneously that I was the oldest man present, the oldest person present, and I got at least half a dozen people sorted me out as they left after 9.15 and assured me that I was not the oldest person present. With great humility and reticence in this service, I know I'm not the only, the most ancient person here. But I want to suggest to you that if Moses could have been called at 80, why should I think that it's time I packed the boots up? And isn't it, isn't it God saying that Moses was ready at 80 because what had happened for 40 years? He'd spent 40 years in exile. He actually was able to empathize with these slaves. After all, it's very easy when you're living in a pharaoh's house to look at your fellow, fellow Hebrews as slaves and think, I really ought to help these people. It's another matter when you've been in exile yourself. You've been an alien. That's why he calls his child, verse 22, Gershom. I've been an alien in a foreign land. Because you see now, he actually was ready to leave. The young Moses couldn't have done it. He couldn't have coped. The, the, the mature Moses found it hard. That Moses would have failed. We need God to call people with youthful enthusiasm but we need people who have been matured, who have learnt something of the ways of the world. And Moses was ready. Or at least you might have thought he was. If you come next week, remember 10 o'clock, you'll discover he had a problem. But just for the moment, he was being made ready. In a way, there's a little bit of promise. And again, there's a, there's a little note of it being human. Uh, you get the name of the people, his, his father-in-law and his wife, Zipporah. Do you know Zipporah, verse 22? 
actually means Twitterer. Fancy calling your child Twitterer. That's what Zipporah means. It always brings back that story. I always remember we had a chap from Script Union came years ago to do a family service here. And he decided he had a, he had a question up his sleeve to ask me, thinking I wouldn't know the answer. But first of all, he's going to ask the children. And he would turn to me and say, now, oh, come on, Philip. And he, the question was, what was the name of Moses' wife? Now, of course, he didn't reckon, reckon with all the well-taught children of Fullwood. So he asked the question, anybody here know the name of Moses' wife? And I can still remember it. There was a, a young lady who's now a mother of various children, was then about seven years old, sitting up in the gallery. And up went a languid hand as though, why are you bothering with such a simple question? Anybody know the name of Moses' wife? Zipporah, said this child, up there in the gallery. And so the script union man was beaten in his own game, hoist on his own petard. He never got the chance to ask me the awkward question. And you will want to know, would I have known the answer if he had? Never mind. <laughs> Actually, I think I might, because when we were in St. Helens, Margaret and I had three years ministry in St. Helens, we had a, a gentleman, well, if he's a gentleman, he was a, he was a very famous fullback for St. Helens rugby league team called Moses. That was his surname, not his Christian name. And Moses' little kid sang in our choir. And we always called his wife Zipporah. I always feel sorry for that poor wife. We always, we always called her Zipporah because he was called Moses. So I might have remembered the name. But what I know is that here is in this wilderness experience, God is actually listening. He's remembering. Please don't miss that, but he remembered his covenant. I haven't forgotten, says God. I haven't forgotten. I'm going to do something. Will you take as a thought for today? Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18. I give you a little verse. Isaiah 30, 18. Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. He rises to show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. In our messy world, remember God does work out his sovereignty. I studied history at university and I remember getting us a book, a book which helped me called Christianity and History by a man called Butterfield, professor at Cambridge. And he pointed out how over the long eons of history, in the end, tyranny doesn't win. In the end, ultimately, Righteousness does triumph, but it's a long process. We've got to wait. And as far as we're concerned, personally, we've often got to wait for him. And then, just sometimes, there comes that awful moment when we who have been sitting back waiting, what is God going to do in the world? What is God going to do for his people? God suddenly says, okay, I'm ready. You, go. And Moses, who'd been waiting all this time, when the chips were down, wanted to duck it. But that's for next week. And we'll start the story next week, at 10 o'clock, as we pick up the story. But just for the moment, remember, whether it's our own personal lives, and we do wonder, we are surrounded by grace and love divine, but the hands that hold us are the hands that went on the cross painfully so that we might have life. And the exodus that you and I rejoice in is not just through the Red Sea, but from sin and through the blood of the cross. So I can trust him. Worth waiting for.
And if I think of that world out there, I rejoice to know that in the midst of all the uncertainty and tension and troubles of our world, who's on the throne? No, not Israel. Not their enemies. Not Blair or Bush. The Lamb. And the one who rules this world is the one who has made the exodus possible for us all. Blessed are those who wait for him. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, that you are true to your covenant love, that you never forget You care. If we care about some of the troubles of our world, how much more you. We pray that you will indeed work out your purposes and help us prayerfully to play our part. And if it means some sacrifice of time to be involved in prayer and act in service, help us to be ready. And Lord, in our own lives, thank you. At whatever age we are, you have a plan and purpose. Help us, like Moses, to believe that the way of Christ is the way that counts. Not the way of success. Not the way of doing well in this world. Those are secondary matters. The way of pleasing you. And so help us to go out from our time of worship into a world, whether on holiday or at work, that we might recognize that you are sovereign of our lives, sovereign in our world, and give us grace to wait for you. In Jesus' name, amen.